Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. cold, windy, and, uh, <clears throat> and rainy today in New York City. A nasty day. It's funny how people say it's a, a bad day or a nasty day, as if the day has anything to do with it, like it intends to be that way. <laughs> Anthropomorphizing amorphizing anything, everything. Yeah, it's a nasty day out there, nasty day. Um, and that's the weather. That's all for the weather. Let's maybe go to a little news a few weeks ago, I wrote a long letter to my son, uh, basically apologizing for all the bad fathering I did when he was young. He's 32 now, married and living and working in, in another city. I wasn't mean to him. I never hit him. Maybe yelled at him twice in his life. No, uh, really, my great crime 
was leaving him when he was only five years old. That's that's what the worst part was. I I only moved thirty blocks away, and he slept over once uh, once a week at my new place. I also saw him every weekend, and uh, we talked a lot on the phone. But still, I wasn't there every day and night when he was growing up, and I wasn't giving him the attention and the protection he deserved. There's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for that. And it's even worse when you think that my father left me when I was four years old. So how could I repeat one of the worst things that ever happened to me? How could I do that? The reasons are <clears throat> extremely complicated. But, of course, it wasn't because of him. It was never him. Uh, he was and still is the sweetest, most loving son you could possibly imagine. No, it was me being monumentally selfish, and he paid the price. So writing this letter of apology to him was something I wanted to do for a very long time, um, you know, almost since the day I left where he was living. It took me several weeks to write this letter, many, many drafts, and then I finished it and mailed it off and was immediately worried about what would happen when he got it. So days go by, and I knew he had probably gotten a letter, but I didn't hear anything from him. Typically, I thought the worst, of course. Uh, obviously, I'm thinking he really hated me for what I did when he was little, and he was either not going to reply at all or write back and tell me in detail what a son of a bitch I was, and he's glad that he lives in another city and hardly ever sees me. Finally, <clears throat> about five days after I mailed the letter, he sent me a long email, and it was a revelation. It was very mature and forgiving of my sins and omissions. He said he remembered many things about me from his childhood that he cherished, and that essentially the past was the past, and he had long ago given up holding on to grudges, which is his way. And it's a God-given talent, right, to not hold a grudge. I mean, I've held grudges most of my life, and it's resulted in nothing but emotional retardation and uh, perpetual angst to hold a grudge. Anyhow, he wrote this wonderful letter, and it made me feel, to say it made me feel good is an understatement. And this, ex this exchange of letters between me and, and my son reminded me of something similar that happened between my father and me when I was in my late 20s. It was around, started around Thanksgiving in 1974. After a lot of discussion with my then living girlfriend about how I'd spent my life estranged, not just physically but emotionally from my father, she encouraged me to write him a letter telling him my feelings, all my feelings about him, particularly being left by him when I was so young, right? Not to mention leaving me with my crazy mother to uh, compound the felony. At that time, when I was doing this, in 1974, my father was living and working in Istanbul in charge of a local office of an international construction firm. And I had visited him a couple of times uh, over there, flying directly to Istanbul from New York City. And <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. And I don't know if you've ever traveled much. I never traveled much before or since, but I've been to a few places in the world and a few places in the country, but I've never been to anything like Istanbul. Nothing as magical as that place. Uh, reasons for that? First of all, uh, I had a lifelong fascination with uh, fairy tales, especially Middle Eastern myths and fairy tales, the seven voyages of Sinbad, Aladdin. So, you know, Constantinople, Istanbul fit right into that. Then there's, uh, I always had an interest to this day, I still have it in, in world history and geography, 
although it's hard to pick up the paper and look at anything these days, of course. But still, I always like to know where something is and what, what went on there and what's going on there now. And all of this, of course, is mixed in with the image I had of my father, who was always larger in life, larger than life to me, and um, traveling all his life since I'm little to exotic places, right? And Istanbul, though, was, like I say, far and away the most mysterious, exotic, and the most fascinating place I'd ever seen. Now, this is 45 years ago I'm talking about when I was there. And things, uh, clearly things must have changed greatly in every way. I mean, politically, materially, right down to the very appearance of the city itself. So um, when I talk about Istanbul, I'm not talking just about the actual Istanbul I visited in my late 20s, but also about an Istanbul from the past, from my memory and from my imagination. Uh, And I, you know, I don't have the time here. I mean, I could always do part one and part two, and maybe I'll wind up doing that of a show like this, a story like this. Uh, but I, so I can't describe everything that I saw and heard when I was visiting over there. But I could, you know, give you just some ideas. Uh, the people, first of all, and this is just Istanbul. I didn't really travel. I traveled a little bit with my father. We went to out in the countryside to a couple of other cities. The people were very attractive looking. Um, I didn't see hardly see hardly anybody any fat people. <laughs> people didn't look indolent and overweight and. Uh, depressed like they do uh, often when you see, um, you know, Americans in various settings in different places. They were very uh, thin and um, good-looking good people, you know, um, and they were always rushing around. And uh, one of the reasons they were rushing around all the time, they, were always in, they always seemed to be in a hurry. They talked fast. They gesticulated. And, uh, I mean, to what extent this was, um, you know, this was part of some racial makeup or I, I have no idea, but... Uh, Part of it was the fact that uh, from walking around the city and sitting in restaurants and seeing people in offices, people there drank innumerable cups of Turkish coffee, small little cups, but they drank them all day long. And this stuff was um, not like any coffee uh, most of you probably uh, have or that I have. It was This stuff was like thick, black, almost like syrup, like pure caffeine, right? And on top of that, they poured a lot of sugar into it all the time. So people are always, uh, you know talking passionately and walking fast. And um, on the other hand, every once in a while, you'd, you'd cross a street and go into a courtyard or you'd walk down some side road someplace. And in the afternoon, you'd see people just sitting down doing nothing or lying on the side of a road dozing. And um, so everybody, about it was a huge place. I mean, it's one it was, had like a million people in the time I was visiting it. I'm sure there's a lot more now. Um, to get around, you walked, right? And you could, there, was a, there was some public transportation, but not a lot. But most people walked everywhere. And uh, they, had, uh, a bunch, they had these old, forget about Uber or you know, modern cars or anything. They had these old beat-up cars. This is 1974. These cars must have been from the 40s and 50s, some of these things. And they were cabs. Uh, and they were called, the cabs were called dolmush. Dolmush, which means stuffed grape leaves. Because, and this is uh, way before Uber, right? I don't know. Is that what Uber does and Via and these other places? They, you got in, and it was uh, filled with people. I mean, jammed, you know, uh, elbow to elbow. And um, they dropped people off wherever they were going, and uh, then they took on more people. And um, this is what they did all day long. And you wanted to stop. I mean, I didn't know any Turkish at all, not one word. But I learned a couple when I was there. When you wanted to stop, you said, Tamam which I think in English means enough, <laughs> enough, 
that's good. I'll get off here. And um, the money, you know, I, the money was very colorful. Like a lot of uh, American money is very uh, utilitarian, no matter what pictures or, uh, you know, and images are on it. But it's nothing compared to the most foreign money I've ever seen, which is extremely colorful, not just green and white and uh, black. It's got about 10 different colors in it. It's got, uh, it's amazing, you know, birds, uh, people flying, and foreign money. is. <laughs> but the Turkish money, this was in 1974. I don't know what it is now. Um, it, it didn't take many dollars to buy a lot of stuff there. I mean, for like $10, you would get something like, I don't know what, um, uh, 500 Turkish lira. They were called lira for some reason. And the city itself uh, was, I, I guess basically you could say it was very old and very new. Uh, one time I saw a man leading a bunch of goats in the center of downtown where there were big new office and apartment buildings going up. This guy was leading his goats right through the middle of everything. And the walls were like the ancient walls sort of crumbling and big old wooden mansions that were hundreds of years old, faded colors. And the coffee shops, the restaurants, the shops, stores, open-air markets, everything was a mixture of old and new. And the streets didn't run straight. It was the opposite of a grid-like place like Manhattan, which is all deliberately laid out in right angles. The whole city in Istanbul twisted and turned and curled, right? There were courtyards everywhere, places within places. A couple of turns in, in Istanbul and you'd be completely lost if you didn't know this city. But the people were very civil and friendly, you know, they're rushing around. Uh, I got lost one time and some guy there... Um, this was way on the other side of the city from where my father's office was. And he walked me all the way back, just walked me back and said, you know, have a good day, whatever. <clears throat> and the food there, <clears throat> the food was mostly fresh. All the food I had there was mostly fresh. And it tasted better than most food I've ever eaten in the United States. The fish, if you ate fish, it was just caught. I mean, if you drove a little ways out of the city, you'd see people fishing, right, in the ocean. And... Um, then there were trucks standing by. So fish you ate was just, and then there were the yogurt. It was like they just made it that morning or something or finished making it. And vegetables came straight from the countryside right into the city. So all the food was in incredibly, uh, it was all natural. It was really delicious. And of course, uh, one of the big tourist attractions, but a great attraction no matter whether you're a tourist or not, something called the Grand Bazaar. This huge covered market, like something from the Arabian Nights. I mean, inside it and all around it, uh, there wasn't anything that wasn't for sale. People were making things. They were selling things. They were buying things. You could bring things there and sell them. I have no idea uh, if there was uh, anything illegal going on, but I think you could probably guarantee that there was. There was nothing you couldn't buy or sell in that place. It was this gigantic, you know, four square blocks covered, um, covered market, and it was like tinsmiths, coppersmiths, merchants of every conceivable thing. Rugs, paintings, silver, jewelry, gold, antiques, new jeans, books. I mean, there was not, absolutely nothing. Batteries, you know, appliances. And they had, uh, the city had many old bookstores, old bookstores. And uh, mostly, um, mostly it was Turkish, uh, but mostly Arabic and French and English. And uh, Turkish, of course. But there was some Russian, there was some German. And there was one store I wandered into. The store itself was very old. Uh, there was plaster falling from the walls, and it was you could see it was just a really old place. The building was half falling down. And in the middle of this huge leaning, all these piles and piles of books and pictures and everything on the walls and the floors and 
spilling off the shelves. There was an old, very thin, sort of beady-eyed lady dressed in a long black dress who might have been Jewish or possibly French. I don't know. Um, she radiated, this woman radiated unfriendliness. Actually, she seemed to resent me even walking into the store to begin with. I don't think she wanted anybody in her store. But, you know, that's not, a, that's not an unusual thing for all book types. I've seen that with people who, uh, who own old bookstores and run old bookstores, as few as, the, as there are left, of course. They love books, these people, uh, but not people. <laughs> books, you could bring as many books in as you want. You could drown in books, but they weren't happy about people walking in there. So how did they do business? They hardly did. They got by. They ate books, I think. And I was always fascinated by old books. And during uh, the couple of visits I made to Istanbul, I went to this shop a couple of times, and I browsed for hours. There was an upstairs to the shop, but the stairway was completely blocked solid. This wooden stairway was blocked solid with piles of books, so you couldn't get up there. And the city was just an amazing place, absolutely amazing in every way. From my, pa- my father's apartment, he had this sort of very modern apartment, w- which was on the highest hill in the city. You could see Russian freighters in the Bosphorus going from the Black Sea into the Adriatic and the Mediterranean, and then who knows wherever. And you saw the giant ships with the hammer and sickle on them. This is the first time I had ever seen any real physical evidence, not just something I read in a book or in a newspaper, uh, of the evil empire, right? I mean, an actual Russian ship with a hammer and sickle, big, strong-looking ship. And, um, I mean, this is the country that caused me to duck and cover under my desk in the 1950s. But here it was, right? It's just a ship. But Jesus, what an impression it made. And my father had an office, huge, uh, modern, also in a modern office building, was furnished with expensive Persian rugs and wall hangings and lamps and, and uh, exotic paintings. And his employees, except for his secretary, who was very Western in her manner, she spent some time in Paris and was very fashionable. Most of the other employees were all very subservient. They weren't servile. But it would definitely, um, it would definitely not for a moment assuming that, that even the pretense of familiarity or equality with my father. I mean, it wasn't like in an American office at all. They approached his desk reverently, and when they were done talking to him, they literally bowed their heads and backed a couple of steps up before they left the room. Like they were, <clears throat> like you've seen on TV where people back out from royalty. And they treated my father basically like he was a big pasha. And my father, though he had been a Roosevelt Democrat and had friends at City College in the 30s who were communists, my father loved this. Um, He was a big guy anyway, and uh, he had a big personality, uh, bigger than the average Turk, that's for sure. And uh, he was always full of opinions and grand pronouncements. Uh, Before he ever went to Turkey, he was fond of saying, waving, he used to wave his cigar around in the air, I think the best form of government is a benevolent dictatorship, and I think I'd be the best dictator. (laughs) But he didn't really mean that. He really loved uh, democracy. Growing up in the World War II, we were very patriotic. Uh, but in some ways, Turkey in 1973, it was a perfect place for him. Um, you know, uh, they still were, you know, they weren't too long away from uh, sultans, right? Um, anyhow, but in the end, it wasn't so perfect, I guess. One of the men uh, whose name I forget now, who, who worked for my father, uh, was a sort of an office manager was a Sufi. He was a Sufi Muslim. And he was a musician. And I think he played some kind of string instrument. He was part of a small orchestra that played for the whirling dervishes, right? 
I went to a recording studio to see them cut a record, and then my father and I were invited to the first public performance of the Whirling Dervishes uh, in, um, I don't know, 50 years. What happened was uh, with um, when Kamal Ataturk took over in the 20s or 30s, it was, um, um, they banished the, the sultan and everything like that and the royal court and all that corrupt crap, and... Um, they got rid of uh, religion, which was all intermingled in their own minds. And they set up um, a government that had almost no religion, which was very unusual, of course, for a place in the Middle East. And they were considered, they considered themselves very modern, almost a little socialist, although there was still a kind of an autocracy, right? Um, but this uh, whirling dervishes, they allowed, they were just allowing this back. In the 70s and 80s, the Turkish government uh, was allowing some religion back into the into the common life of people. Of course, now, uh, and usually also for political purposes, it's gone way in the other direction, like everything else in the Middle East, very conservative, even ultra-Orthodox, right? But in those days, it was just sort of peeping its way back. The mosques were beginning to open. And um, they, um, the whirling dervishes, who were uh, Sufis, um, uh, were performing their first public performance of this roaring dervish ritual, which was filled, uh, it filled a kind of um, a small stadium, uh, an indoor stadium. And uh, it was the most extraordinary, extraordinary thing I've ever seen. I, I have never before since seen anything in my life or experienced anything that was so transcendent or spiritual as watching this whirling dervish. I don't have time to describe it now. But watching with the music slowly building and building and the whirling dervishes coming out completely dressed in white, standing stock still, then turning slowly and then more of them coming out and turning faster and faster and faster. And it was extraordinary. It took you literally to another world. It really did. I mean, you were in another world. And then when they were done, it took a long time to come back to earth. Just an amazing experience. And the city, like I say about the city, it was um, – this is a city that was um, – a combination of everything, which was why it was so fascinating. It was round and straight. It was old and new. It was clean and dirty. It was noisy and quiet. And uh, it's, um, it was suddenly things happened. Things like sort of went along, and then suddenly something would happen. There would be excitement, and then it would be very quiet, and then it would be exciting again, right? Something would happen. You could, I mean, if you were steeped in history like me, you could smell sort of blood. I mean, it was a crossroads, right? This place had been a crossroads of invasions and empires and people conquering from Europe to Asia to Europe to Asia for thousands of years. And I, I imagine I could smell blood and spices and commerce and intrigue and sex everywhere in this place. And a place like New York, you know, with all the power and the importance it has, some of itself importance, it seemed juvenile in comparison with this city. I mean, this city seemed like it was like a father of all cities. People could be excitable. I mean, I saw one time um, on a very busy street, a guy chasing, screaming, chasing another guy down the street with a huge dagger in his hand. I mean, he was screaming. People just jumped out of the way. There was no cops around. I didn't see very many cops there. You sort of had to take care of yourself in Istanbul. And also the military, though, there weren't cops around, but the, there were soldiers everywhere, not in the city. But they were everywhere. At, at the time, and Turkey always had a big army and prides itself on having a a big, strong army. You know all the stuff that's going on now. But at the time, Turkey had the largest standing army in the world for the size of its population. That's how militaristic they were. 
And the Turks had always been warlike. And uh, now at this point, when I was there in 1973 and 74 and a little later, they were right between the Russians and NATO forces. They were always, Istanbul and Turkey, always right in between the West and the East. So it was the Americans on one side, really, and the Russians on the other side, because, you know, Turkey is right up against Russia. And um, But the time I was there, it's not that way now. You read the papers, right? But the time I was there, the Turks loved everything American. They were crazy about Americans, uh, to some extent the political system, though they never really went totally into democracy. And you could see what's going on now. They're headed straight back to a dictatorship. But they... Uh, all the modernism of the U.S., they liked all the modernism of the U.S. And, of course, our government gave them a lot of military aid, so what's not to love, right? And uh, one time my father and I drove outside the city, and we went over a, a, not such a steep hill. And on the other side, there was a dozen tanks. I'd never seen a tank before with people in it, one that could actually, that was locked and loaded, right? I had never seen anything like that before, not having been in the Army or in the service. And there were soldiers everywhere. So they were, they were all around the city. And there were soldiers all over, the, over, over Istanbul and Turkey. But they didn't go in the city. There must have been some rule or law. This was 1973. And it was not too long after the Vietnam War. Uh, right around this time in the 60s and 70s, Turkey, especially the 70s, Turkey had been one of the main stops for hippies all over the U.S. and Europe on their way to India. And... Uh, you would say that, I guess you could call it severe. The Turkish government had what you would call a severe attitude about illegal drugs. They didn't care if it was as inoffensive as pot or hash, right? <clears throat> and there were signs posted at all the known hippie hangouts in Istanbul. It said this, sale or possession, I remember I wrote this down, sale or possession of illegal drugs will result in eternal imprisonment. Eternal imprisonment, Right. This is not just life with maybe time off for good behavior, but every life after that, right? No matter what. You're reborn, you're in prison. Eternity for one puff of a reefer. That's it. Um, and these visits with my father, which I made in 73 when he went over there, and 74, and then again in 75, um, he was at work some of the time. Wherever I had always visited my father, where he did things in the world, he, he was at work, Um <clears throat> and um, yeah, you know things to do. They they were building. My father went all over the place. He built uh, chemical plants uh, over in Turkey. He had helped build an oil refinery or a couple of oil refineries that made into gasoline. And then um, um, <clears throat> he was part of a, a supervisory group that was constructing a gigantic new bridge over the Bosphorus, which I think finally went up around 1975. But they had an older bridge then. They wanted to replace it. And he was in charge of uh, of construction of one side. I think it was the European side of the um, of the bridge over the Bosphorus. Uh, and I was so I'd wander around the city, and I liked it because I didn't understand a word people were saying. Now you know, if I went into a shop or I went into the bazaar, well, once in a while, uh, it was you know Istanbul. You know, it's a cosmopolitan city for it had been for you know a couple of thousand years. So you know, people would speak. Uh, they would speak different languages, and uh, some people spoke some English. Like I say, they, they really were crazy about America and Americans at that time. And I would just, but I just would wander around, and I would sit in restaurants. I would eat this terrific food, drink coffee, have uh, Turkish pastries, and um, just wander, which I loved doing in this place. There wasn't a lot of car traffic. The city, the old part of the city, and I don't mean the old part of the city, but 
the, the fact, the part of the city that was old in every way, you know, that was ancient. There weren't that many cars, and there was some tr- there was a lot of trucks for delivery, but there weren't that many cars in, in Istanbul. Not like a city like New York, where uh, there's a car or 10 cars every two feet, jammed together, speeding, stop still, honking horns. Um, they just didn't have that much car traffic. You know, vehicles weren't so big there. And so you could walk around Istanbul with a feeling that uh, that you weren't going to get run over every second by a bus or an SUV or Uber or Boober or Stuber or anybody. You know, no car was going to go through the light or anything. You know, they had one or two main roads that went straight through the city and a couple of roads where there was more or less traffic. But uh, otherwise, uh, there was still, like I said, there were people with donkeys and donkey carts in the middle of the city. People walked everywhere. And uh, pedestrians basically had the right of way. They sort of did, went where they went. Uh, although the Turks being the way they were, kind of wild in some ways, there was no traffic lights in Istanbul. No, there was no. There was one, no, two traffic lights in the whole city that I saw the whole time I was there, all the times I was there. So... Uh, even though pedestrians had the right of way, they had to be alert because <laughs> there was no the, – the Turks did not like stopping. They just leaned on the horn all the time, and they uh, drove wherever they want. But if you got away from the one or two main roads, you could walk very leisurely through there, and you could give in to sort of like a daydreamy attitude. And it was good for somebody like me because, um, you know, uh, crossing the street while I'm thinking of the many things that I think of at one time, and even the things I don't even want to be thinking of that I'm thinking of anyhow, um, can be um, uh, difficult (laughs) for somebody like me. So uh, over there, I just sort of walked around, and I wandered around the city, and I went into shops, went into like this old bookstore, like I told you about a couple of times, uh, walked around the bazaar, people offering me all kinds of things. And in the bazaar, uh, initially, when I went in there, people spoke to me in Hebrew. I mean, the place was <clears throat> one of the big things about Istanbul and Turkey itself, but Istanbul is that it's a, one of the great tourist uh, stops of the world. So they're used to people coming from everywhere and other things, too. Who knows? Like I say, everything went on there and probably still goes on there. I mean, everybody is doing everything there, and there are people from all over the world, even people probably who shouldn't be there or there. But uh, <clears throat> when I went into the, the Grand Bazaar, uh, they initially they would spoke to me in Hebrew, which was sort of thrilling to me to people think for people to think I thought that um, that I wasn't an American. You know, they didn't just start talking in, in English and saying, you know, buy these jeans, buy these jeans. No, well they were saying that, but in Hebrew, they were addressing me in Hebrew, and when I didn't seem to understand instantly, they switched to French. This is getting even better for me, right? to think that uh, I look so uh, exotic and foreign to people, right? That didn't work out so well, although I knew a good amount of French. I could understand French from, I had French in in, high, in junior high school and high school. Um, so I understood some French, but not enough to, you know, to transact a negotiation, um, you know, f- to buy or sell something. Anyhow, uh, so they spoke to me in French, and they gave up finally, and they spoke to me in English, which was a little disappointing for me. You know, didn't, I didn't have my exotic status anymore. But I wandered. I wandered around the city. And one time I walked into a musical instrument shop. And the proprietor there, um, people hardly noticed me walking in. A little bell rang. The propi- proprietor, the master um, of the place, was playing a very long piece on the oud. 
this Turkish string instrument, which has a terrific sound. And um, there were a lot of young men. He was in his 50s or so, but there's a lot of young men standing around. And they had, uh, like, respect for him and awe. You could see it in their faces. The whole place was almost like a, it was like a religious um, ritual that was going on there. And this guy, I mean, I had never heard Oud playing very much before in my life. And this guy was playing and playing and playing and improvising and occasionally looking up. And everybody there was, like I say, was, they were sort of in, in awe of this guy's playing. And I could understand that. I mean, I had never heard such virtuoso playing. And it didn't make any difference to them that I, like a total stranger, uh, was in the shop. It didn't bother them at all. The music was absolutely everything. And uh, we all stood there. I stood there for a long time, like in a trance, until the man stopped playing. Uh, it was an extraordinary experience. And uh, <clears throat> like I say, I'd like to go into the, um, into the uh, coffee shops and sit there because they didn't hear a word that I could understand, which is a great relief to me. Wherever I go all the time, I am bombarded. I have no barrier between me and whatever else anybody is saying. I take in people's conversations. I hear everything they're talking about, inane, tragic, funny, and it just uh, goes straight into my brain. So it was nice to be in a place where I didn't understand a word anybody was saying. It was like having a warm, mental, uh, oral, verbal bath. <laughs> I, I didn't have to worry about it. And there's a lot more I could tell you about Istanbul, little side trips we took, negotiations, deals, uh, wanderings. Uh, but I want to get back to this letter that I was writing to him all those years ago, which is what I was talking about in the beginning. When I wrote that letter, my father had been living in Istanbul for two years. And like I say, I'd already visited him a couple of times. And I remember when I was writing this letter, sitting in the living room of this tiny two-room apartment that uh, my girlfriend and I had in Brooklyn, in Park Slope. And I was using, I remember this very clearly, I was using the, that three-hole uh, lined loose-leaf paper that you, you know, from the old days you put in, um, in uh, those big school loose-leaf binders. <clears throat> and I was using a Bic pen with uh, green ink, a ballpoint pen with green ink. And when I was, I was writing this letter to him, as I was writing it, I noticed at one point that there, were, that there was actually water on it. It turns out it was tears. I mean, I felt like a dam was bursting. When I was writing this letter, I told him in this letter everything. I told him essentially, too, how angry and miserable I was when he left when I was four years old and how he was always traveling and how I only saw him for a couple of hours, uh, maybe every couple of months, just for a couple of hours. We came over and visited um, from wherever he was and wherever he was headed to. And, um, <clears throat> and I mailed the letter off with trepidation, right, because my father— I was worried about his response. You know, my father was prone to outbursts and to grand pronouncements. He was not emotional. <clears throat> he was not a personal guy. And um, I, was, I was worried about what the response would be. Uh, and I was thinking maybe he would tell me, as he had a couple of times in my life, uh, unjustly, I thought in some cases, to just stop complaining, that everything I was whining and complaining— Gary Null once told me, he said, I was the chief complainer of the Western world. I guess it's true. <laughs> Gary said, and I said, oh, you know, I should stop complaining. He said, no, don't do that. That's what you do, Mike. So Gary knew. Anyhow, my father was always telling me to stop complaining. But in his case, it was different, right? Because he was the, uh, the root of a lot of my complaints. But he didn't want to hear one word, right? And he would say, you know, grow up and accept the past, you know. Be a man. Shut up. Stop whining. 
Yes. If I want to go off and leave you with your uh, with your crazy mother when you're four years old, if I want to go to the four corners of the earth and pay no attention to you for months, maybe years on end, you know, that's something you should just swallow. Yeah, right. Anyhow, what I never expected that he was going to write back was the letter he actually wrote back to me. It was, for him, an extremely personal letter. It was respectful, and it was understanding, and it was kind. It was a tone that he had never taken with me before. And, uh, you know, there was hardly any, none of this usual pedantic, opinionated, defensive tone that he took with me all the time. He was very emotional in this letter. And it's something, and like I said, that's something that did not come easy to this guy. You know, that was not the way he was. And uh, so what was happening was my father, the engineer, by writing this letter, was he was building another bridge. He was building a bridge to join the two of us together. And uh, in this letter, he asked me to understand how impossible it was to live with my mother, as crazy and vicious as she was. But that was the point. That was one of the points, right? If he, a big, strong man, couldn't have handled her lunacy, how much less could I, at the time, a little boy, handle it? So that was the big question. You know, why did he leave me with somebody who seemed to spend half her time on Earth trying to destroy me? I mean, several years before this, um, before I wrote this letter, there was an incident. I never asked him out directly. There was an incident between me and him and... uh, at that point, my, uh, my uh, first wife. And she was very blunt, a very blunt woman. And uh, <clears throat> my father and her had been drinking a little bit. And I, I had told her, you know, about my early childhood. And my father's over there. And at one point, she just blurts out um, a non sequitur. It wasn't related to anything we were talking about. Uh, uh, Mike always wanted to know why you left. <laughs> I couldn't believe it because I would never say this to a face, right? I don't know why. But uh, Mike always wanted to know, she says, why you left him uh, with his mother when she was so nuts. How could you do a thing like that? And my father says, and it's something I heard him say again uh, a couple of times in my life when the subject came up sort of tangentially. Uh, The doctors, this was his story, the psychiatrist told me, he says, that she would go straight back to the mental hospital or maybe even try to kill herself if she didn't have Mike with her. So that's good. I was a human sacrifice, right? That's 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 what I uh, that's what I'm hearing from him. And after this uh, remark of his, there was this long silence. And in this silence, what you could do uh, very clearly is uh, hear the sound of somebody who was lying. Right. Um, My father was a very honest guy, one of the most honest people I've ever met, sometimes honest to a fault. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes he would not temper his honesty with sensitivity. But he was honest. He would not lie in his tax forms. He would not lie to anybody about anything. He just either didn't say anything or he told the truth. But this time he was lying. But so uh, what don't I mean? I, and after a while, I just drifted away from the conversation. They, would, they started arguing about it. I don't know. I wasn't listening anymore. Um, but, um, but it was clear to me that really what he wanted to do, and, and I'm, um, I'm saying this because it, this happened a few more times in my life with him, And I came to the conclusion that he didn't really want kids. He wanted to travel all over the world, which is what he did, wanted to have adventures, wanted to build things, and he did not want to be uh, hampered by children. He wasn't going to, you know, uh, despite, you know, that I was in a house uh, that was like a a house on Haunted Hill times 100, it didn't, he preferred to go off and do what he was doing. 
And I'm sure he had a lot of guilt about it, which is maybe why he was so defensive all the time. But that's the way that was. Anyhow, in this letter he wrote back to me from Istanbul, he told me he was flying into New York for a few, in a few weeks for Christmas and New Year's, and he was going to see me and my sister and visit his sisters, my aunts and their families. And I was looking forward to this visit more than I could possibly say, more than I could possibly even express to you, right? This was going to be my rebirth. I was going to get together with my father after my whole life of not really connecting with him. Um, so what happens? Two days before he's due to arrive in New York, my mother had an insane fit. I mean, one for the ages, right? And my aunt called me up to come out to my mother's house in Queens. This is I live in Brooklyn. Because my mother was raving mad and had become unintelligible. And she had even bitten my uncle uh, when he tried to get her to calm down. My aunt and uncle lived next door. So she was completely out of her mind, and they called me. I told them never to bother me, but this time they did anyhow, right? I mean, they could have just called up the 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 you know the the hospital and had them send out um, an ambulance to take her away, but they called me anyway. And this is two days before he's supposed to arrive for me to have my big meeting with him. So I get out there, and she's sitting on her bed, completely gone. I mean, not a spark of humanity left in her face, like a wild animal, right? And all this, uh, all this crazy bullshit, I thought to myself, this insane crap of hers is intruding on this state of blissful expectation I had about my father's arrival. She was ruining this whole thing in advance. I tried talking to her, but she just stared at the floor and grunted. I yelled at her. I cursed at her because I was angry and because I thought this might shock her by, by yelling at her. It would shock her out of uh, the state she was in. Not, it didn't make any difference. She just stared and muttered. And this is too much for me. Uh, this crazy woman, she had driven my father away in the first place, as far as I was concerned. And now she was about to come in between the two of us again when he was coming to, around to see me. But so I, though I hated to touch her, I grabbed her by the shoulders and shook her. And what happened was her head banged into the wall. And, um, but she never came out of this trance. I gave up and I was disgusted. And I left the house and I drove back to Brooklyn. And later that day, my aunt calls me up and tells me my mother had gone into a coma and the ambulance had rushed her to the hospital. And I figured, well, this is because of me, that I killed her, that I banged, my, banged her head into the wall and that she was in a coma. And, and anyhow, they didn't know if she was going to live or die. And when my father arrived two days later, she was still in a coma. And, you know, talk about upstaging. Talk about upstaging, right? That's nothing compared to what this was. Essentially, my father's trip to New York, the trip I figured that was going to change everything between us, was ruined. And because all, all I could think about was my mother. Now, she finally, a couple of days after that, she pulled out of the coma and was sent home. And she seemed to be perfectly okay. But by then, it was too late for me. The meeting between me and my father was really basically poisoned. And I had this strange feeling. I was furious at my father. And, but I didn't understand why. I'm not sure to this day I understand why. I mean, here he was. He was back in New York. Finally, my mother's okay. But I was furious at him. And it was all confused in my head. I couldn't figure out why I was angry at him, but I was angry. I was cold furious at him. And I'd been waiting to come home and connect with him. But when he finally shows up, this is how I act. I, I wonder if I, I... I'm thinking about this in retrospect. And I wonder if I got it into my, into my head that my father was somehow responsible for what happened to my mother. 
I mean, there was no reason logically to think about this. I mean, he was in another city flying in an airplane over the ocean when she, uh, and, you know, when she was in his coma. But that's what I thought. I blame him for what happened. And I think, now that I think about it after all these decades, I think this awful scene with her and him brought back that experience of her, of his leaving when I was four years old and she was at her worst and him leaving, just abandoning her and me, right? And basically, uh, what I'm thinking is, here she is, nuts again, and he just comes and goes as he pleases, like he once did, and she gets dumped in my lap again and again, like it always was, right? And he just goes all over the world, does what he likes. And um, maybe, um, despite all my wishes and hopes for connection, I couldn't toss out my old anger at him that I had for so long, even if this hadn't happened with my mother. I don't know. I, I don't know what the reason was. Anyway, the visit uh, was a really, t- it was a terrible disappointment. I felt like, uh, I felt like the f- that was it, like it was the final disappointment. And in fact, when I think back, I think that it was then that I sort of never opened myself up to be crushed again like that. I never have, and have never, despite whatever, whoever I've been with, whatever I've done, I've never left myself that much open uh, and expected so much and been crushed, I would never open myself up like that again. And I'm thinking, let somebody else do the hoping and the suffering. Let somebody else be the sap. It's not going to be me anymore. And when I said goodbye to him, it was empty and it was cold. And um, this is this is now mid-January, right? It was uh, all this was all around Christmas and and New Year's. And then he flies back in mid-January. And from Istanbul, he sent me a present, a kind of a small imitation grandfather clock that works sort of that he had put together uh, from a kid I think and varnished and I wrote back it was a childish ungrateful letter the clock was I said the clock was cheap looking and can you imagine and didn't work right and I don't know what else I wrote some stuff like that and he wrote back another letter and he was very offended and uh, he he had uh, <clears throat> he just couldn't he couldn't understand um why I was so mean and when he had gone to so much trouble with his clock and he was, he was offended and hurt by this and I guess I meant to do that and um, just left me thinking, what is wrong with me? I mean, I cannot uh, be decent to people who cared about me and who I cared about. This is, and then maybe there was some awful karma between me and him because we never could connect and a couple of days, I wanted to say that I, I remember a couple of days before he flew back to Istanbul, someone took a picture of me and my sister and him on the steps of my sister's apartment building out in Queens. And I can see that picture very clearly now when I think about it, every detail of it, what each of us was wearing and the expressions on our faces, I can see it. And my father in this picture, oddly enough, when the print came out from the store, had a kind of a white haze over him, like his own ghost prematurely was superimposed on him. And I was still angry at him, but I, I mailed him this picture without a note attached to it or anything. Um, this was near the end of January now. And then on January uh, 31st, <clears throat> I went out. Uh, it was a Sunday. I went out and uh, got to Sunday Times, came back to the apartment, and my girlfriend is standing in the middle of the living room, completely agitated. And she tells me that my mother just called, and my father had died the day before in a plane crash outside of Istanbul. <clears throat> well, finally, my sister and I go back to Istanbul for the last time. 
And we were in his apartment. We were packing up things. Uh, we were getting things all together, his possessions, and getting things ready for, um, you know, for the company that he worked for to crate everything up and mail it back. And uh, we packed everything up, uh, picked things that we thought were valuable. We didn't want to leave for people to, to steal. And, um, uh, you know, uh, basically most of the stuff that, that seemed like it was lived in was in the kitchen. My father was uh, basically a born transient. Every place he ever stayed was like a hotel room. But the kitchen, the kitchen was warm. It was a comfortable place. He liked to, he liked to be in kitchens. He liked to cook. He liked to eat. And um, uh, I was kind of always adventurous myself, but I never realized it because I was too neurotic. But my father, he really did it. But, you know, when he was home, he just liked to be in the kitchen. But he didn't like being home. Home was not a place he liked to be. And we found in a bedroom, or I found in a bedroom on a table next to the bed, a letter he had been writing, which was a cover letter to a resume. He had been writing uh, to, um, to, to engineering firms in New York City to get a job. He was planning on coming, when he, go, when he died in his plane crash, he was planning on coming home. He was planning on coming home. And I, it may be so sad. I mean, it was so sad because... Um, First of all, he's writing this letter, and it was, you know, he's 57 years old, and he's writing about how, uh, though uh, he's not young, and I never heard my father take this kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, subservient position before. He was always the boss, and that was sad. But what was excruciatingly sad was the idea that he was um, on the way back, and he would have, if he lived, he would have come home. Um, anyhow, I wandered around the city after we packed all this stuff, and I found uh, some Turkish money in his apartment, too. It was thousands of lira, which is only like a couple, like about $100. And I got drunk at the hotel bar where I was staying, and I went down to the casino, and I gambled and gambled and gambled and until I lost that money. I gambled to lose, just threw that money away like I, I was burning my hands, right? And I wandered around, and I finally wandered around the city, and, but it was all cold and dead to me. I, got, I went to this bookstore that I'd gone to before, and... Um, and uh, <clears throat> I went in there, and this woman was just as nasty and mean as before. But I didn't pay any attention to her. I said, I'm going upstairs. She said, you can, she's yelling at me in French. She's yelling at me in, uh, in English. You can't go upstairs. I knocked all the books off the steps, knocked the books down, and went upstairs to this other room. And I was grabbing books off the shelf. I was like a bull, knocking everything around. And I came downstairs and threw her some money and walked out with these books and came home. Got back to Park Slope, and um, I, couldn't, I couldn't deal with the grief and the rage. I couldn't deal with it. I used to see my father. I thought I saw my father in the street. I would rush up to men who looked like my father from behind, but it wasn't them, right? And, uh, you know, I just, I just stayed in my apartment. I had nightmares in Istanbul and people running and screaming and daggers and music playing. And about six weeks after I, um, I got back from Istanbul, a giant trunk arrived from his company. There was a couple of small rugs, some books, uh, kitchen stuff, a picture, painting, and um, there was a huge sheepskin coat that he wore over in Istanbul. I wore it a couple of times, but <clears throat> and it felt like my father was, you know, sort of around me, on, you know, like taking care of me. But I had to give it up finally because it was so big and it was way too big for me. And I gave it to some guy I knew who was a lot bigger about my father's side. Well, you know, um, that was a long time ago. It took me a long time. And I still really haven't gotten over it because it was so abrupt and so bizarre the way he died and the way he had lived. But, uh, you know, now I don't think about him every minute. But when I do think about him, it brings that ache to my heart. The good news here is that my son 
uh, was just up this past weekend for a visit, and it's the first time we spent so much time together in years. And it was a pleasure to be with him. And he's become a terrific uh, man. I say young man, kid, right? When you're when your father, everybody's still a kid, right? Um, your your kids are kids, but he's become a terrific man. I mean, he's uh, he was always like this, but you know, it's this spectacular intelligence he has, and he was always tenderhearted and considerate, and he still is. He spends his working days and a lot of his weekends, he works too hard, helping people. He's married, like I said, he has a lot of good friends, and uh, he's living a good life. Um, and there it is, right? So coming and going. My father and my son and me in the middle, I have never been able to make sense of how these relationships are supposed to work. Never. Um, maybe it's because I never felt comfortable with men. Uh, I grew up with, uh, with all with women who ran everything. The men in the family I was, when I was growing up would basically work for the women. And everything was centered around women when I was growing up. And the boys I hung around with when I was a kid, I never... Uh, spent time um, with men, just uh, some boys I played with on the street, you know, in the school. And um, so I never had any example of a man, no man teaching me anything. So men always seemed kind of like alien creatures to me, and they still do often. Whereas women, they may, they may irritate me or find them sympathetic or desirable, uh, but at least women seem like the same species as me, as strange as that sounds. Uh, but men, I don't know. So... That's it. My father and my son and me, the eternal, puzzling, aching beauty of that love. Maybe in the end, there is no making sense of it. It just was. It just is. And it just will be. that don't get lost like a coin that won't get tossed rolling home to you Oh man, take a look at my life I'm a lot like you I need someone to love me the whole Doesn't mean that much to me To mean that much to you 
I've been first and last Look at how the time goes past But I'm all alone 